Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King is a study through the book of Acts of the original Witnesses of the King, that is King Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and the account of their actions after the ascending of Jesus into heaven is found in the book of Acts. And we've been studying these Witnesses of the King. And in particular, these last few weeks, we have been studying uh, the works of Paul the Apostle, uh, one of the great witnesses of the king, responsible for writing many books of the New Testament, responsible for a great deal of the action that takes place in the book of Acts. But I also want to point out today that the witnesses of the king is not limited to those that we read about in the scriptures or those that we read about in, in church history, but they continue unto this day and include ourselves, all who would proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We are all witnesses of the king, each and every believer called to be witnesses of the king. Welcome. And I welcome you to Acts chapter 26. We were in Acts chapter 26 last time when we took, looked quite a bit uh, at what Paul was testifying to in front of King Agrippa and Festus, the governor of Judea. And he had this awesome opportunity to defend himself, to try to get off his charges, to try to get a way out. And yet what Paul chose to do was give his testimony and speak of the gospel instead. And so we have a wonderful example of testimony in Acts chapter 26 that we looked at in depth last time. But this time I want to zero in on just a couple things that Paul said that enlighten us to how he understood the scriptures and how they spoke of Jesus Christ. And we're going to take a look at that today and we're going to learn for ourselves what the scriptures say about the relationship between Jesus Christ and the promises given to the people of Israel, and all the prophecies of the Old Testament. So join me in Acts chapter 26. We're going to begin by taking a look, if I can bring up my notes here momentarily, taking a look at a couple things that he said. I'll get you to the scriptures here momentarily. Uh, first, we're going to look at uh, chapter 26, verses 4 through 8. And then I'm going to skip down and look at verses 22 through 29. And what I want you to look at here is first he's going to speak of the promise to the people of Israel. And then he's going to speak about the prophets. So let's take a look at what he says about the promise. He says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Later in this same discourse, after being interrupted by Festus, uh, he, he speaks in this way. He says, to this day, or, or just before being interrupted, I'm sorry. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Well, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the scripture. We thank you for your servant Paul. We thank you for all indeed that we have learned all through this book of Acts. Lord, this day I pray that you would send your spirit to us to give us understanding that we might understand the promises to the nation Israel and the speakings of the prophets through the ages as well as Paul understood them. For we share the same spirit and we have the same scriptures in our hands. I pray that you would bring us into uh, one accord with our understanding of those things and how they speak of Jesus Christ, our Savior. I pray, Lord, this day that you will increase our faith by these things and that, Lord, you will call each one to yourself and to the, the, a new level of understanding and relationship with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here you see, uh, Paul has a great many things to say uh, in this discourse, and he appeals first to his manner of life and saying simply, I've just been faithful to my faith, to my religion, and I'm just believing what the scriptures actually say. And so he's not appealing to any kind of a difference in religion. He's just saying, I'm simply believing what the scriptures say about our faith and the discrepancy between himself and the Jews then becomes a matter of their unbelief and not a matter of holding to a different uh, ideal or different scriptures or something else but simply that they refuse to acknowledge what he sees plainly what was revealed to him by God in the scriptures and so the questions that remain to us is what promise is he talking about? Because you'll notice here, he says promise in the singular in verse 6. And then, which prophecies in particular is he talking about? And I want you to notice that both these things, these the promise and the prophecies, are connected to the resurrection somehow. So we're going to see how all these things fit together. And here's what we're going to find out. Paul's hope in Christ is a hope in the fulfillment of the promise of God to the people of Israel and the fulfillment of all that the prophets had to say. So let's first talk about the promise. The promise, And this starts, of course, as we see there in verse 6. Paul says he has hope in the promise that God made to the fathers. And I want you to notice that this promise is singular. And this happens also in Acts chapter 13. That uh, Paul says there, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So there you see again this singular promise spoken of, and he connects it again to the raising of Jesus. And so this promise has a connection to 
the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so we see this connection in chapter 26, where he says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So he mentions a promise and he says, it's because of hope in that promise that I've been accused by the Jews. Why would any of us think incredible that God raises the dead? And this is something that we ought to just focus on just a moment. Think about this, and I want you to do this for your homework. Answer Paul's question. Why should anyone think it incredible that if there's a God, that he would raise the dead? That should not seem incredible to us at all. And especially if we read the scriptures, we understand death did not enter the world until sin did. And if he has sent Jesus Christ to solve the sin problem, he is also solving the death problem. This is so plain to see from the New Testament and in our interpretation of the old based upon the new. So what is this singular promise to the fathers he's talking about? Let's go back to where Israel had just one father. He talks about a singular promise. Let's go back to when there was a singular father who received a promise. That is all the way back to Abraham. Paul talks about this extensively in Romans chapter 4. So let's go back to Romans chapter 4, verse 13. And the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So he's going to explain how Abraham was righteous by faith. Yeah, Abraham from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, was righteous by faith not by works of the law. And Paul takes us back there and he says, well, what is the promise to Abraham? The promise is that he would be heir of the world, a father of a multitude. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 17 and take a look at this. Here's what the Lord says to Abraham concerning this covenant or this promise that he makes with him. He says, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So Abram, he changes his name here. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. And so a powerfully important moment in Abraham's life God makes these promises to him and then renames him uh, as, as a sign of his inevitable fulfillment of these promises. And it has to do with being a father of a multitude. Well, I want to propose something to you that everything hinges on this promise to Abraham. And what we will see is this. This promise of him inheriting or being the father of a multitude of nations is all about resurrection. It's all about eternal life. Let me show you. Back to Romans chapter 4, verse 21. Notice what it says about him. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's kind of the definition of faith, right? That's what Paul's talking about here. Abraham was fully convinced that God could do what was promised. And this was connected then to the word hope in chapter 4, verse 18. If we just scroll up a few verses here. In hope, 
that is Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Now, it sounds like doublespeak, in hope he believed against hope. The word hope, as Paul uses it here, and as he used it there in Acts chapter 26, is better understood as an expectation. In our language and in our culture today, we often think of hope as wishful thinking. In other words, I bought a ticket, I hope I win the lottery. And this is something that's unlikely to happen, but we would be very happy if it did. Well, in the Bible, when you come across the word hope, it's more of an expectation, especially when we're talking about faith, because a hope given by God is a belief, a conviction that he will do what he said he will do. And he has proven himself to do so with a perfect track record. And so then hope becomes more of a stronger word. It becomes an expectation. And it says, in hope he believed against hope. In other words, in this hope, this expectation, he believed against all worldly expectations that he would become the father of many nations. Why? Because Abraham was very old. His wife was very old. His wife was barren. They had not had any children yet. And yet God said that they were going to have a child. And through that child, he was going to become a father of a multitude of nations. That child, of course, being Isaac. But look how he goes on here in verses 19 and 20. He says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do as he promised. The essence of his promise is people, life, and his situation was this. He was as good as dead, and Sarah, his wife, was barren. That is, her womb was unable to bring forth life. And so this is a hope of life. This is a hope of life from the dead. That's what the promise of God to Abraham essentially was, was a promise of life from death, a multitude from a barren woman and an aging man. And so this is the promise, the hope of resurrection. Now, after Isaac was finally born, Abraham was tested by the Lord. The Bible uses that word. I didn't use that word. The Bible says he was tested by the Lord, and he was asked to offer his son Isaac as an offering to the Lord. You can read all about this in Genesis chapter 22. So here's Abraham having already received a miracle of this child. It's as if God says to him, now, do you really trust me? And Abraham passed the test. He took Isaac all the way to the point of raising the knife in the air to bring it down upon his son and sacrifice him to the Lord, as the Lord had said. And the Lord, of course, stopped him. The Lord's not going to let us do such a thing. That's for him to do. The whole thing was a picture of the coming of Christ. And he essentially gives Isaac back to Abraham because I, because Abraham had offered Isaac in his heart. He was raising his hand to do the deed. And yet God provides a sacrifice in his place and essentially gives Isaac back to Abraham. A beautiful picture in Genesis 22 of redemption. 
But look what the commentary says in Hebrews chapter 11 as it comments on what happened there in Genesis 22. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered, watch this, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so his hope in this offering of Isaac was, eh, God can raise the dead. And so now we understand that this had to do with the raising of the dead. This had to do with bringing forth life out of death. And is that not what redemption is? Death entered the world through sin. As we read Genesis chapter 2, we find that the law given to Adam was in the day you eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree, you shall surely die. And that's when death entered into the world. So the essence of the promise is life from death. A multitude of nations as descendants of Abraham by faith. And we are assembled together across generations, but one day we will be united in the resurrection as a single great nation, the family of God. You see that then Abraham's victory of faith was a trust that God could raise the dead. And that is the essence of the promises. Life from death. A multitude of nations spanning the generations and the centuries of those who passed away brought together in life to be a people of God's own creation. So Paul's hope and our hope is in this promise to Abraham of having a multitude of nations. All other promises of God to the nation of Israel, which there are many, support this major promise, driving toward the coming of Christ in whom all this comes together and fits. This is the essence of Paul's hope in that promise. And it's not just the singular promise of Abraham. Let's talk some about the prophets. You noticed that nearing the end of his discourse here, I want to zoom in on this for just a moment. Back to Acts chapter 26, looking at verses 22 and 23. Here Paul says almost the same thing that he said near the beginning when he said, hey, I'm just open in what the scriptures say, uh, in the promise that God gave. Now he's going to uh, bring this about to speak of the prophets. He says, to this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So he appeals here to Moses and the prophets. He says, hey, look, all I'm doing is, you know, in the beginning of his discourse, all I'm doing is believe in the promise of God. And now he says, all I'm doing is believing Moses and the prophets. It's the same thing. And we're going to see that the promise and the prophets point to the same thing in Jesus Christ. Uh, now, he challenges Agrippa with this, and he gets pretty bold here. And he says, uh, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And so he makes this great appeal to Agrippa. 
Don't you see what the prophets are saying? Don't you understand what all this is pointing to? It's all pointing to Jesus Christ. Moses and the prophets. This phrase speaks then of the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. You know, here he says the prophets and Moses and what they said would come to pass. And when we find those words together, what it's speaking of is Moses is credited with the first five books of the, the Old Testament. And the prophets kind of encompasses all the rest. Yeah, all the prophets, the books of history, the Psalms, all those were written by prophets. And truly, if we understand this properly and understand what a prophet is, Moses himself was also a prophet. And so we have the writings of the prophets all through the Bible. So Paul is saying the whole Bible talks about this, the fact that the Christ must suffer and die. But what specifically is it talking about? Well, certainly Isaiah chapter 53. And it really begins back here in chapter 52, verse 13, where it begins to act of the servant. It speaks of the servant, which we have seen that this is Jesus Christ. Why? Because... Uh, it, it says very simple things like this, despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, surely he's borne our grief, carried our sorrows. We seemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And schol Christian scholars all agree, this is speaking of Christ. So clearly speaking of him, uh, by his substitutionary atonement. That is, he took our place under the wrath of God, gave his life in order that we could have peace with God, that he, as it says, was crushed for our iniquities. And then it talks about the, the, the sin and how, how the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus not, did not defend himself after he was arrested. And like a lamb that is led to slaughter, yes, John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. And like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So there he is, he's dead, he's cut off out of the land of the living. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. He was buried among the rich in a very nice tomb had not been used. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in their mouth. But look at this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This was all according to plan. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is the prophecy that he will see those who believe in him and his days will be prolonged. The grave will not keep him. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so this is a clear indication that he is resurrected, that he continues to live. And that's in Isaiah 53. We can also talk about Psalm 22 that Jesus spoke about from the cross itself. He mentioned this first line, and by mentioning the first line, he is pointing us to the entirety of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is a great deal of language in here. I don't have time to go through it, but you can read it and you'll see very clearly. 
great deal of language. It speaks of his anguish, of his rejection, of his crucifixion, very specifically having the, the hands and the feet pierced and being despised and taunted at while he was on the cross. Look, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. This is how they taunted him when he was on the cross. But this is, uh, you know, he's poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint, which uh, is, you know, Scholars say that is what happens during crucifixion. Uh, his, his mouth is dry. His tongue sticks to his jaws. And so all these things happen. I can count on my bones. Not, not a bone was broken of Jesus. Because when they came to break the legs to, to get the men down off the cross, to, to go ahead and finish him off, he was already gone. Uh, but look at this. He says, You, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, which was a derogatory term for Gentiles. It was the Roman Gentiles who crucified him. Um, but look at this in verse 20, 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So this one, despite the suffering, despite suffering unto death, he is going to speak of these things in the congregation, that is in the gathering of his people. And he appeared to his disciples and he appeared to as many as 500 at one time, showing them that he had been raised from the dead and teaching them what they needed to know to carry on the spreading of the gospel. And we could also appeal to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, where it talks about the God's plan to bring about the the accomplishment of all things. And this is a, this anointed one, okay, Messiah, a prince comes, and it will be a certain amount of time. And Don't have time to go into it, but look at this. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And this is a reference to Jesus being crucified, that after a time he comes and he is cut off and seemingly has nothing, but then he really begins to build his kingdom. Daniel speaks of this coming kingdom of God. So Moses himself was a prophet, and we see what the prophets say about these things, and we see a pattern all through Scripture pointing to Christ. And we see a pattern that points not only to Christ who would come and fix all this mess, but a Christ who would suffer. From the very beginning, the very first prophecy concerning Christ, in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, it says this, I will put enmity, God says to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there, the coming one that destroys Satan and destroys his work, that is a fatal thing like bruising the head, he himself receives suffering. That is, he himself is afflicted by, indicated by the bruising of the heel. And then there's a little bit of a glimpse here later in this chapter, because uh, Adam and Eve all of a sudden experienced shame, having sinned against God, and that shame carried with it a great dysfunction. It warped everything that a human being thinks and does. And all of a sudden, they had been naked all this time, and all of a sudden, they realized it and were ashamed. So they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, and the Lord looked at that and said, that's not 
worthy. That's not decent. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And this is seen by many people as this is the first death. This is the first animal sacrifice. Adam and Eve and the rest of mankind did not eat animals until after the flood. It's a concession by God. And here this first death that takes place, the very first spilling of blood in the world is because of Adam and Eve's sin and it is used to give them garments to cover their shame. So powerful stuff that we see and understand. Now, many of these things are spoken of directly, many somewhat indirectly and somewhat obscure. Many of them are found in what we call typologies. Things that speak of Christ as a type. It'll bring a person along, it'll show us their life, and their life in some way parallels the life of Christ or some of their actions or some of their sayings. And we see these things all through the scriptures. One of the most famous is in Genesis, and the greatest number of chapters are devoted to a single man and a telling of his story. And this is Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. And Joseph's story parallels Christ in that this, he is rejected by his own family and he is left for dead. And yet he essentially rises from the dead, being sold instead to slavery to the Gentiles, that is to Egypt. And he goes down there and becomes a great leader, second only to Pharaoh of the Gentiles. And then ultimately through uh, the work of a famine, his family is driven to him and he saves them as well. And so his life is a parallel to Jesus. I encourage you to read it and you'll see that indeed it is. There are many other stories that are also parallels. Moses himself has a bit of a parallel in that he is raised up by God. He has somewhat a miraculous birth, escaping an attempted genocide as Jesus escaped an attempted genocide. And Moses was rejected by his people when he first moved to, to free them uh, by committing a murder and trying to cover it up. He was rejected by his people and exiled to the Gentiles. But then he returned to lead the people out of the promised land. And then comes along Joshua, who is also like Christ in many ways, in that he is raised up to lead the the people of God on a victory to conquer the promised land, much as Jesus will return to conquer the earth and bring his people into a new heaven and new earth. Then we meet someone named King David, and he was an anointed king, but he was an unlikely candidate. He was the uh, last, the youngest of the sons of Jesse. And after, even after he was anointed by Samuel to be the next king at the direction of God, he was persecuted by Saul. He was chased down for his life. So he suffered before receiving the crown. He had great difficulty before coming into his glory. And this is a pattern that we see in scripture of suffering turning to glory, death turning to life. The prophet Jonah is an interesting one because he was essentially dead in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus even appeals to that and says, I'm only going to give you one sign. That's the sign of Jonah, he said to the Jewish leaders who were believing in him. And Jonah went and prophesied to the Gentile city of Nineveh, and they repented and believed in the message that he brought. 
So there's many, many more in the scriptures. And that's what we do here is we study the scriptures to see what they say about Jesus. That's what he challenged us to do. That's what he commands us to do, to search the scriptures. The nation of Israel herself, before being a great nation, they suffered in captivity in Egypt and later came out to conquer the promised land. Then it happens again as they suffer in exile before coming back into the land and receiving the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Do all the scriptures really speak of Jesus? Well, Jesus himself said so. As he appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, he says this to them, because they were walking away from Jerusalem, they had heard reports of the resurrection of Christ, and yet still left the city. And he says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, Jesus says it's about going suffering first and then glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They had the ultimate Bible study session walking along that road from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. Well, those disciples were so excited, they turned around and went back to Jerusalem and then learned more accounts of the resurrected Jesus and had great joy. Well, look what Jesus also said about the scriptures in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus believed all the scriptures were about him, and he was right. And look what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, that near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so these are the amazing truths that Jesus brings forth, that the entire Bible speaks about Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul can say in Acts chapter 26, all I'm doing is believing the scriptures and what they say about the promise that God gave to our people and all that Moses and the prophets said. Paul's hope is the fulfillment of these things, and they all have their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. For Abraham to become a father of a multitude of nations. This is how we read the Bible, how we study our Savior. This is how we get to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever I meet somebody that's struggling in their faith, that is having difficulty in really uh, taking hold of their, their faith in Jesus Christ and finding the hope that is there, they're despaired, they're distracted by the cares of the world, they're, they're a little off track, what I find is a lack of Bible study in their lives. And a lack of accountability usually goes along with that to other believers. Get involved with other believers and study the scriptures. This is how we get to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And people say, yeah, but we have the Holy Spirit. We were told by Jesus that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Yes, and he uses the scriptures to do so. The more scriptures you have in your mind and in your heart, the more that the Holy Spirit has to work with, the deeper will be your commitment, your understanding, your joy. All of it comes 
from this study of the scriptures and the person of Jesus Christ. He is gathering together a multitude of people. And you can see how none of this makes sense without a resurrection. For God is eternal and he's assembling a people to enjoy him eternally. Because if you think about the progression of the gospel as we see it today, many people believe, and it's a small percentage of people that believe, but many will believe, and, but that generation will pass away, and hopefully many of their children will believe, and many others that they touched, and et cetera, et cetera. But at any given time, it is a minority of people on the planet that actually believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is not his goal. His goal is a multitude of people who will enjoy him forever. And so all of these people from all these different times and different places, whether they're Romans or Jews or barbarians or Scythians or Indians or African or European or American or even a few Kentuckians, all these people will be brought together in the last day, resurrected together and enjoying a new heaven and new earth with the new Jerusalem that has the very presence of God himself forever and ever. This is the promise that Paul was talking about in Acts chapter 26. And this is the promise of God to all who believe. So how do we respond to this? What should be our next move in these things? How should we understand these things? Well, first of all, I encourage you this. In verse 18, to open their eyes, to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. This is what Paul proclaims, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The invitation here is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you may have your eyes open, that you may move from darkness into light, that you may move from death to life eternal. And this is the, the invitation that the gospel gives to us. And so my invitation to you is to look at these things and consider these things. Look at what verse 20 says here, that Paul's proclamation to the Gentiles is that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. How do you enter into these promises? How do you know this? First of all, repent. That means admit that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short, that you've been in rebellion against God. Consider all the things that the law says about how we ought to behave. And consider how you might measure up. And also consider that Jesus said, it's not just a matter of the letter of the law. It's a matter of the heart as well. It's not about whether you've murdered. It's about whether you've hated. It's not about whether you've committed adultery. It's about whether you've lusted after things. And so these things then begin to weigh on us. And he says, it's not about whether you've done good works. It's about whether you've done good works with the right intention. And so all these things come together and we understand we're in need of repentance, for none of us have had perfectly pure motives in even our good works, and none of us are without sin. The Bible makes it very clear that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that that sin has earned us a death penalty. So our first step is that we must repent of our sins, and we must put our trust in Jesus Christ. And this repentance is not just a one time to enter into the kingdom. 
but it is one time to enter in and be saved, but it is a lifestyle of continuing to improve, continuing to walk away from those things and walk closer to God. And so he says, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with righteousness. Uh, I've once heard someone say that the 11th commandment is thou shalt not fake thyself out. In other words, don't, don't just think that you've repented and believed and that's all you have to do. There should be evidence. And Jesus says that we will know people by their fruits and that there should be deeds consistent with a confession of repentance and that they should be a lifestyle change, that there should be certain works done that were not being done before and there should be a forsaking of certain works that we ought not to do. In other words, it ought to be visible this change in yourself. Now, we don't do it for the sake of being visible, for getting attention or anything else. We do it because we're convinced by the Lord that these things are so, and we're convinced that we should forsake these things and trust in him for our salvation. For Jesus, in his death, paid the price for sins, and in his resurrection showed that he is the author of life, offering it to all those who would believe. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe all that they have said? And if so, why not study them? Why not read them and get to know them? And then perform deeds in keeping with your repentance. Have you been baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you joined a local body of believers and as a place to serve and exercise your spiritual gifts, and you may not feel like it, but you are gifted by God to serve him in some way among his people, then those would be your logical next steps to get with somebody and explore these things and understand them and continue to search the scriptures to see if what I've said here today is true. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your word. We thank you so much for this message, and we thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in your people and how you're gathering to yourself a multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and time throughout all of history to know you and enjoy you. Lord, I pray that you will make yourself known to the listener this day, that you will draw them to yourself, convince them of their sins, but of hope also in Jesus Christ. And I pray that there would be a great surrendering and a great clinging to this great promise, this great hope, the hope given to Abraham, the hope that is passed through Paul and all the way to us this day. We thank you, Lord, for the hope. We ask you, Lord, to help us to walk in it with the joy that accompanies salvation. We thank you. and We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope it's been a benefit to you. I invite you to uh, contact us if you have any kind of questions or concerns or have any kind of need. If you have a prayer request you'd like us to pray for, uh, send it here, whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. Or if you need help finding a local congregation that believes the Bible wholly, that believes the prophets and has the right understanding of salvation, give us, uh, give us an email and we can help you find a church near you in which you can worship God in spirit and in truth. So thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time, Witnesses of the King.